From the Sydney Opera House, this is It's a Long Story, a podcast that delves into the lives and stories behind the big ideas. I'm Edwina Throsby. It's architecture's job to figure out what are the important things and to organise space and light and to provide the best possible experiences for us to flourish. Kevin McLeod had a childhood where everything was built from scratch and his home was more like a workshop. So it's no surprise that the built world eventually became the focus of his life and work. Yet in his earlier years, Kevin wore many different hats, from working in an Italian vineyard, studying music, designing sets for the Cambridge theatre troupe, The Footlights, owning a lighting design shop, and designing the famous ceiling of the Harrods Food Hall in London. While this eclectic mix of experience may have been enough for some, Kevin's best known as the host of the British lifestyle program, Grand Designs. A champion for social housing and sustainable development, he continues to explore the ways that architecture can benefit our lives. Kevin McLeod, welcome to the Sydney Opera House. Thank you. It's a great honour to be here. Very exciting. Have you spent much time here before? In Australia, um, yeah, I've been several times. Um, I like it here. Um, I like the extraordinary can-do attitude that people have. You know, the flip side of that in Australia is that that there's a tremendous commerciality about everything, you know. Uh, And and whereas in the UK, you know, our natural state is one of diffidence. (laughs) You know, you're never going to see a social revolution happen in in England in the the way that it did in France. And so, uh, yeah, to come here is kind of quite extraordinary because at its extreme form, Australian life can seem almost brash and and very go-get, you know. Um, but it also has this fantastic energy about it, which is very appealing. Mm. So your father was, he was a rocket scientist. Yeah. Well, actually, he said the rocket science was really straightforward. And the hard thing was doing what he was doing, which was designing test systems for rockets, so he wanted to break them. Um, <laughs> Out with the rocket yeah, scientists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so he, 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 yeah, worked in aerospace and with satellites and, and engines. And, of course, you can imagine what our household was like, you know. Even in retirement, he was repairing other people's televisions for them and, um, you know, designing and building his own stuff and trying to get new designs patented. And Yeah, he invented a whole load of stuff. What sort of stuff? Well, he he, he actually invented an extraordinary um, measuring device, a a levelometer, which was designed to measure, uh, to help surveyors figure out how level bridges were. And it it used mercury and it was magnetic and it was the forerunner of everything that you have in your iPhone these days, it's a little, you know, that tells you whether something's level or not, the inclinometer in the iPhone. So I'm just going to sue me for saying that. Um, But uh, yeah, he was a great man, very gentle man. Yeah, you've spoken a lot about him. Um, Not so much about your mother. What was she like? She's still around. (laughs) Well, that's why... (laughs) Why you don't don't talk about her? Yeah, I don't talk about her much in order to wind her up, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But, But was it a happy home? Oh, good Lord, yes. I mean, three boys... I say a happy home. Yes, it was a happy home. Three boys, usually a motorbike engine on the, you know, in parts on the kitchen table or the gas boiler in bits on the floor. And uh, my mother kind of tearing her hair out. Yeah, she was living with four males, all of whom were kind of building airfix models and soldering things on her worktop. Yeah. Did she work outside the home or did she have her hands full? Uh, she, no, she also worked. Yeah, yeah. So she worked in accounts and um, later on ran a, a social services um, uh, care uh department and um yeah yeah she had to i mean you know engineers weren't very well paid in the 1960s they're not hugely well paid now so um yeah it was kind of um we i grew up in a house where everything was made partly because that was the culture my parents grew up in 
and because they had no money when they got married. And um, and so that was just simply what you did. You know, mum sewed and knitted and uh, made clothes for us. And, you know, I, I, and I, I even now kind of slightly bristle at the idea of being the only boy in my class who had shorts, trousers, you know, made by my mum and and a, a knobbly pullover knitted by her because everybody else had these beautiful sheer pullovers, you know, yes. which was thin, of course, and didn't and keep you them were warm. warmer. Yeah, I was warmer, yeah, yeah. So you've, you've said before, and I'm quoting you here, my parents weren't particularly strict. In a way, they were very liberal 60s parents. They had themselves escaped, I think, the rigours of the religion which, when they had left the rural seaside Yorkshire town they'd grown up in. One of my grandfathers was a preacher, you see. Yeah. That feels paradoxical, a, a kind of quite strong Methodist upbringing, which required church on Sundays that you said That's right. y- you went to, but then also a kind of, you know, um, bending to the to the prevailing 60s counterculture. Yeah, look, you know, my parents weren't hippies. They didn't want to run in caftans and smoke weed. Um, they were very, very correct people. But at the same time, my father was engaged in this technological world. And... Um, uh, and I think, given where they had come from, and when in the forties and fifties, and, and particularly in this rural East Yorkshire, with a very very strict background, yeah, yeah, they were, uh, had an amazingly kind of uh, liberal time. And I think you know, my, my grandfather, for example, never forgave my father for stealing his daughter from him and taking her away. My dad, you see, my dad grew up in a household which was m- much wilder. So my grandfather, on his side, his father. Um, uh, played piano in the pub and also trombone in the Salvation Army Band. Right. Never really worked. He was always unemployed. And um, and his kids, uh, my uncle, for example, who came, he was an artist, uh, grew up, you know, and went to art college and or became engineers or nurses. You know, there were lots of them and they all did various things, but they were a, a complete mixture of disciplines. And, um, and uh, yeah, if anybody had a liberal education, it was my father, yeah. <laughs> it's like sort of, you know, what, what, what was meant to produce a polymath TV presenter really, wasn't yeah, it? I suppose so, yeah, yeah, mm. jack of all trades, yeah. yeah. I'm a, from a family of jacks, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you finished school and then you took your gap year in a vineyard. Yeah. What was Sounds th- ideal, doesn't it? I know, it really, really <laughs> does. <laughs> was, that, was that something that happened by design or accident? Oh, well, I, I went off to Italy. And, you know, coming from a village in Bedfordshire in the 1970s it, 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 you know we had top of the pops on television we had you know three television stations we had you know a bus to get us to the local town but life wasn't that glamorous or exciting I worked in a pub a lot and so to to go to Italy and suddenly you know discover this the, the architecture the sunshine the culture the language every, I just fell in love with the place and found almost for myself a new identity. I could sort of almost make myself into a different human being. And I got this job working on a farm, and it was part paid, but it was also, you know, earning board and stuff. And it allowed me to study because I got a place at the conservatory in Florence to study music by mm. this point. I thought I was going to go off and do music until my dad wrote me a very long letter and said, no, you're coming home. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, he was yeah. looking to his father, I suppose. He, well, yeah, I guess, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was, you know, there were times in my life when suddenly the, uh, the Methodist kind of, you know... Um, the, the, the Methodist the, intervention. Yeah, the Methodist, we call it that, the Methodist intervention kind of uh, made its presence felt. And I, um, I, I, uh, I loved working on the farm. I, I, at the time, I didn't realise what it was. I was just looking after some vines, you know, learning stuff. Um, but it was a biodynamic farm 
uh, making Chianti wine in the Chianti region. And I'd look, look back and realise how extraordinarily privileged it was because there were techniques and aspects to the farm which um, which are really rare. And, uh, you know, I just thought that's just how you did it, you know. Sounds completely lovely. Well, you had the Methodist intervention and returned to Britain to read um, Modern Languages, Philosophy and then Art and Architecture at Cambridge. Mm. What were you trying to get out of university? Well, for a lot of it, I was trying to leave as quickly as possible. Um, and I, I think I had a, I had a, a pretty... Uh, I had a good time there, a great time, without realising it. <laughs> um, and I, I was... I think I was quite arrogant about how, having spent time abroad in the real world, making and doing stuff, working on a farm, I saw how... Well, I just felt that, that you know, sitting writing essays wasn't the, the most productive way of using my time. And, <clears throat> and all my life I've had, I, I suppose, this tension between an academic interest and, uh, and writing. And I remember leaving university thinking, God, that's the last time I need to write an essay. And I, since then I've written, I don't know how many books and, mm. you know, articles and still do, and scripts. And in a way, I'm, the, the, the tool that I use the most is the word. You say that you didn't realise you were having a good time. In retrospect, what what were you doing that was fun that you didn't realise? Pretty well everything, you know. <laughs> I mean, seeing a lot of drama, designing sets, um, designing posters for people. I used to earn a bit of money designing, you know, posters for concerts, doing a lot of music. Because <clears throat> you were part of the stuff. Footlights Ensemble, weren't you? Well, I was the designer, so I did a, yeah, I did a... Well, there, there's some sets and costumes for them, yeah. And and for listeners that might not know, that was with people like Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie. They were all contemporaries. Yeah, Tony Slattery, Emma Thompson, yeah. mm-hmm. Jan Ravens, yeah. Fun times. <clears throat> I mean, at the time when you were doing that, did you have any kind of in-the-moment realisation that this was actually a pretty good bunch of people and a pretty good way to be spending your life? I think at the time when you, you know always with the threat of an, an essay crisis or an exam looming over you. Nevertheless, at the time, to, 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 to be asked to do stuff or to get involved with stuff or to go to an audition and get a part, whatever it was, or to join a choir and sing, you, know, you knew that you were doing it with gifted, interesting people. And, and um, that was a little bit uh, daunting, a little bit, you know, um, um, yeah, humbling at times. But... Um, but it's a very small bubble. It's a, it was a tiny town in the middle of nowhere, mm. you know, full of students. So it was a completely artificial world. And, and in addition, sort of laced with all this ridiculous tradition of hall and high table and gowns and, oh, I don't know, you know. It was sort of hilarious. It was Harry Potter meets... Um, yeah, the privileged, pri- privileged middle classes. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I kind of seen enough of the world at that point to realise I wanted to kind of be in that real world and mm. was impatient to get out. So you finished at Cambridge. You, you did get a degree in the end, didn't you? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But eventually, having studied... It was like, I consider it a bit like the American system where I kind of did about eight <laughs> subjects before I eventually got out, yeah. And, and clearly qualified for nothing at that point, yeah. So, I mean, it was interesting what you were saying just now about um, sort of having this tension between 
um, the kind of academic and the rigorous and the studious and then the practical. And yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Because in a way, that's design. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, and that's, I suppose, the natural home for me. Um, the the Absolutely, being able to both resolve problems with a pencil and a piece of paper, but also to be able to communicate them. And I think it's just, by, by, it certainly is. And um, I think actually, you know, in the end, it's drawing and writing are just two tools that, you know, that help thinking, yeah. So you, you started working in sort of design yeah. areas. What were some of the highlights of that early career? Some of the things you're proud of when you look back. Oh, wow. Well, I, I did retrain as a theatre designer afterwards. I, I went to work briefly for a man called Ralph Coltai and did some work for him and did a lot of theatre and education, it was called. It's basically unpaid. Profit share stuff, which was lost share. Um, yeah, and a few bits and bobs, you know. It was all good fun and it was it was pretty desperate and very hard to make a living, but... Um, it's not just bits and bobs for retail stores. It's it the extremely and... famous ceiling above the Harrods food hall. Sorry, well, I just need well, to bring that in. Yeah, yeah, but it was, you know, I worked for Harrods for a little while and, you know, and I just, I look back at that period, actually, and I think it was all very exciting, but it was, it, there was a sort of element of exploration and fun about it. But my own son, who's now 30, is an architect, and uh, I know, and he has followed a far more serious and grown-up and correct Correct. Correct path through design. By, by, by whose by who's dictum is it correct? By my standards, okay. it's correct. Because he's, you know, he's he, he, he's trained longer and his discipline is greater and his, um, therefore, his uh, abilities and his, uh, like any architect, his, his the tools he has are greater and far more sophisticated than any, any that I had. You know, I mean, both physically but also, you know, kind of... Um, Professionally, mm. did he do that? Did did he do that off his own bat, or did you have to offer various methods no, interventions not, along the way? Not at all. No, no. I mean, so, you know, you. I think with your own kids, you want to be. You want to encourage them in whatever they do and support them absolutely, and offer the the unconditional support and love that they all deserve. But at the same time, you know, you to have guided any of my children in in, in, in into an area in which I'm, you know. Enjoy my enthusiasms would would, would have been very um, wrong. It's better they find their own way. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So, how did it come to be that you found yourself on television? How did Grand Designs come about? Being the jack of all trades, um, I got asked if I'd go and do some pieces about lighting, and at that point, I'd so the the the, the work I was doing as a theatre designer had morphed into a... I'd had a design studio and we'd end up designing a lot of product and um, lighting and furniture and bits and bobs. And I, at one point, I'd opened a shop and uh, selling stuff in that. And we sort of specialised in lighting. We sort of, you know... And at that point, there were very few lighting designers, actually, in the world. Very few people who specialise in as a discipline. And I didn't really specialise, but I could talk about it. At least I could try and sell it. So um, I went on telly to do just that and a few little pieces here and there. And for a few programmes, different different programmes, different series. And eventually then the producer, Daisy Goodwin, said, look, would you, um, do you fancy doing a bit more? So I did a bit more, pieces to camera. And managed to find a kind of, a, 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 I suppose, um, 
it was an outlet for, for my various interests and nerdy hobbies, really, you know, be that collecting pigments or making paint or oh, whatever, decorating. You know. mm-hmm. So what was the kind of core idea right back then? Was it, was it we are going to follow these poor bastards through one of the hardest things they're ever going to do and people will come and watch? Well, you know, in the 1990s, television um, consisted primarily of, 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 of entertainment programmes, wildlife programmes, documentaries, a sort of unusual strand of rather exploitative um, reality shows where people would swap careers and... You know, Wives. W- yeah, the, indeed, mm-hmm. and weren't fully told of the consequences of what they were doing, uh, or indeed what was happening behind the scenes with the cameras. And then there was makeover, and um, so this program, Grand Designs, was sold to the channel, Channel Four, as the biggest makeover program you've ever seen. <laughs> but Daisy, who also wrote books about poetry and edited a poetry column, um, was wise enough to realise that within that there is a tremendously poetic idea, you know, of human adventure and expression. Mm-hmm. And um, and so she, she instinctively felt that it was going to be bigger. Um, you know, in the early days, we really did struggle with our contributors because they, they automatically thought that we were going to just exploit them and just, you know, paint them as idiots. And um, it took a fair while a couple of series, really, before we were able to convince people that we were going to simply tell their stories and mm. be relatively truthful about what we were seeing. If you look at the very first episode we ever made, it was it was all over the shop. I mean, we were trying to do a little bit of uh, decorating with the guys and I was drawing their house for them and, oh, goodness knows what. I mean, it was all, it was, we were just simply experimenting. And slowly, over the course of the first series, we refined what we believed to be the right thing. But what was remarkable is that very quickly we landed on the idea we were going to celebrate our subject. So we were going to celebrate architecture and celebrate these journeys. Mm. And that meant that we had to choose projects that we kind of believed in for a start, that we didn't dislike. You didn't want to mock them, you wanted to support them. Absolutely. And we got such stick from our colleagues in the industry for that. An amazing amount of criticism from within the television industry. Because you were missing a trick or what was the criticism around? Because we weren't being cynical. Right. Mm. We were being celebratory. And I, um, I'm really, if, if I'm proud of one thing, professionally, it is taking that stance and standing by it and delivering And I think, you know, time's established that we did the right thing. So you look back at that first episode and it's all over the place, um, but it's now become, you know, highly formatted to the point... Oh, I don't like that word. Sorry, but it's kind of true, right? I mean, you've got a drinking game. Oh, I didn't invent the drinking game. Sure, but the fact that there exists one suggests that there well, are things that people look no, for. No, you see here, no, no, you see, here I have to, I have to disagree because there isn't a drinking game. There's about seven or eight drinking uh, games and they're all different. And, they're, and, they're, okay. and which demonstrates the variation that there is. There cannot be one drinking game because it, you can't apply it to all the programmes. Um, there are certain knowns, yeah, we hope. One is that they finish the house, <laughs> right? Two is that they probably do go over budget, but so does everybody. Mm-hmm. Your nuts on did here. Um, three is that um, it may take longer, but we're prepared for that and we generally forgive them. And, um, and anything else can happen. So day one, yeah, yeah, we see the CAD and we see them and we introduce them. We need a lot of information at the top of the show and at the end we watch, we go around the finished house, but we don't know what's going to happen in the middle. 
How many episodes have you had to jettison because the house just doesn't get finished? Well, actually, properly jettisoned, probably only about six. That's an astonishingly small amount. Yeah, I think we've done about 200 now, so that's not that many. But there are quite a few in limbo still <laughs> after several, maybe a decade, some yeah, of them. Right. That we just can't quite let go, you know? <laughs> I'm sure that it's a, it's a you know having you having you lot filming is a motivator for people to actually finish. Mm. Many people users. I mean, they're quite glad that we're there for that reason. Yeah, yeah, right. So the fame that this successful series has brought you um, is not inconsiderable, I imagine. How has that oh. how has that changed what you can do and how you sort of move around the world? Uh, there are people now who who are famous for being famous celebrities who are celebrities for being celebrities and that's all to do with positioning and placement and endorsement and self-promotion and if you don't do that then you're not so i believe that you you bring it on yourself and you engage as much or as little as you want with your market and with the press and the magazines and all that stuff and i mean most of my pursuits are kind of quite um anti-social <laughs> So like solo, way, solo strolls across the countryside, that sort of thing. Yeah, or with a mate, yeah. Mm. Um, so, uh, no, I, I, yeah, I, 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 I honestly believe that, in a way, you know, the more, it's a very simple ratio, the more of yourself that you put in the public eye, the less, the smaller your private world is. It's that simple. Mm-hmm. One of the things that fame has brought you, though, is a platform from which to champion a variety of causes, um, mm. Sustainable housing is a big one. Big one. You have a um, an agency now called HAB or Happiness Architecture Beauty, which um, builds mass housing. What are the principles of HAB? So HAB, as, HAB? We, as we call it, is um, a house builder. Um, uh, currently in a phase of I think we call it a phase of growth, really. Um, and although I have to say development is not easy work, you know, and we've had a really, uh, like most businesses in that area, really kind of uh, tumbling kind of up and down roller coaster ride over the years. So we started in 2006. I mean, it's run by people far more able than me. Um, b- but I, having started it, sort of still take a really uh, a passionate interest in its sort of philosophy and growth and the schemes we build. and. And the big ideas had to do with, first of all, yes, making, building energy-efficient homes that are super-insulated and with managed ventilation and airtight and at the same time bring some of the values of what you see on television to, to, to popular and available housing. So it's high ceilings and big windows and plenty of light and connection to the outdoors, you know, and, and simple practical solutions to like the what? everyday. A porch. Outside yeah. the house, for example, somewhere to park your buggy or a bicycle to lock it up, even, um, and uh, to keep the, the house clean. Um, big front doormats, uh, lots of storage, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. You know, um, very simple but, but essential ideas for modern living: open plan, semi-open plan, broken plan layouts, and that's all good. And many people are doing that kind of thing. But I suppose one of the big differentiators for us is, is the public realm. It's the space in between the buildings that I'm really interested in. How trees benefit and promote health, how um, uh, incidental food growing in a housing scheme can educate kids and uh, actually get people into food growing in a way that 
reduces their dependency on the food supply chains, mm. how social interaction and sociability and making the streets places not just for cars but for bicycles and human beings too uh, can uh, improve collective mental, physical well-being of people. Social cohesion. Yeah, social cohesion, resilience. And a lot of the work we've done um, has been monitored, for example, by um, in a couple of studies and, and some universities have got involved. And, and it's really quite powerful to see how, for example, on, 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 on some of our schemes, the, um, the, the impact and the dependency on the existing social infrastructure, for example, and physical infrastructure on, for example, roads, um, uh, health service, uh, local social services and psychological support is really quite surprisingly reduced. It's it's a hard one, though, because, you know, you are a small group of developers who are behaving with these sorts of principles in a much larger pool of developers that mm. are very profit-oriented. Yeah. And I, you know, one sees across the world um, development projects which are being put together constantly that don't enshrine yeah. any of those sort of values yeah, and yeah. Are, are very motivated by by profit generation rather than rather yeah. than any of these other things. I mean, how how do we deal with that as a sort of, you know, as, as as a capitalist society? What 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 has to change before developers look at these bigger issues and start privileging some of the yeah. these ideas over over the bottom line? So our, our objectives remain the same objectives that we espoused in 2006. And one of them was to change development. We haven't done that yet. <laughs> uh, one was to provide exemplars. We're still doing that. One was to demonstrate that it's possible to, to actually do our schemes and still make healthy profits. And mm -hmm. that actually social returns and social profit, and social capital are a very important aspect of development. And it isn't just about throwing up units. Now, yeah, in the wider world, uh, we've got a lot of persuading still to do, but there are good guys. And one of the most influential uh, large-scale developers is Lend Least, based in Australia, but also working around the world, working a lot in the UK. Mm -hmm. and we know them very well, and they're, they're, they really are the good guys among the, the, the bigger developers. Urban and Civic in the UK doing fantastic work. So we are seeing some stuff. My office is in Bristol, in the west of England, and uh, yesterday the City Council announced that they'd voted unanimously to um, radically reduce the environmental footprint of the city and to meet the UN's 12-year targets for uh, climate control. City, now, city of Sydney is doing a similar yeah, thing. Yeah, so you know, th this wasn't happening 10 years ago. Mm. And I suppose it could also be about something to do with changing consumer behaviour because, you know, you have a situation where, on one hand, people want to own their own homes, they want to build their own homes, but if you go out to the suburbs in Sydney or areas in Britain, certainly the United States, there's a big tendency for the so-called McMansion, you know, the, the, the kind of suburban home that's built to the edge of the block and that there's a school of thought that says, well, you know, if people want to do that, then that's their, you know, home is the palace. But but is, is, is part of the challenge for um, changing the suburban and urban environment to change the kind of homes that people want to build? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, the, the experience of architecture has got nothing to do with size got nothing to do with 
building to the edge of the plot. It's it's got to do with economy and actual actually uh, clever ideas and. It can have to do with budget, though the access to that sort of. It design. can do, but you can build a, you can build small and beautiful. You can build small and and with great experiences in the building. It's possible to do it all at scale, and it's possible to do it in a community where actually for the stuff that you, you know, say you, you you can't afford a large plot. Well, what you can get maybe is a kitchen that overlooks a communal play area or a, a park, you know, or a, you have the opportunity to share an allotment or share space. And, and sharing uh, in community is one of the things that we've forgotten to do. The average power tool gets used in its entire life for four minutes. So to have a shed on a piece of common ground with a common sandpit and a common trampoline for, you know, 10 houses to use with a, a lawnmower that everybody can share, you know, or two lawnmowers, right? Is, is going to be cheaper, it's going to be more enjoyable, and it's going to certainly going to free up space and free up time and free up, well, free up money, you know, for people. And I, I, so I'm a great believer in that principle in community of providing opportunities for people to share. Now, the last thing we would do is tell people how to live their lives, you know. Move into one of our schemes. Mm. We don't tell people you can't buy a lawnmower. But what we do encourage people to do is to, is to share what they have and, and to actually find that common ground. And again, it does feel like um, sort of more broadly socially we're moving towards a more share-based economy. A more share-based economy, a more circular, local-based economy where people do, uh, you know, it's all, you see it in my children's generation where they don't own cars, where they either, you know, they join a car club or they rent or they, you know, and there are, there are so many options now, as indeed there are with tenures in housing. So whereas for you and I, for example, we might think of either renting or we buy, now you can rent to buy, you can take a part ownership with a social landlord, you can privately rent, you can ethically rent. You can do that in some places. Well, for us, they're, they're, those, all of those tenure types are very important and, and getting the diversity of tenure type. Yeah, on we're scheme. a bit behind here in Australia but on I, that. You know, we, we keep pushing at that door. Mm. I think that's an important... I think, you know, the diversity of offer in any place is essential to the quality of it. In all of your years of thinking about this, are there any basic tenets of home design advice that you've distilled? Yeah, yeah, and they're really basic ones. They're to do with things like storage, views to the sky, because we can all enjoy that, and the fact that the more stuff we fill our lives with, the more there is to go wrong. So, you know, high-tech homes, super-tech homes, homes that have a lot of facilities and rooms and... Oh, you know, the more windows you have, the more there is to clean, you know, the, the more the it's their kind of old tenets, they're old fashioned ideas. But, you know, happiness really doesn't reside in numbers. It's not about quantity. It's about quality. And so um, if you can't afford, if you can't afford somewhere big, don't worry, it's a false god. It's it, it won't bring you happiness. What brings you happiness is, in the end, you know, relationships with human beings. If you spend your time washing your windows, polishing your services and, you know, vacuuming all those carpets, you know, you see less of the people around you you love. It's, it's kind of that simple, really, isn't it? You know, that is a wonderful quote by a lovely critic, Charles Moore, who said that architecture should be uh, an instrument of connection, not of isolation. And the trouble mm. is in our world, it's, the, it's usually the opposite. Mm. You, you build your dream home and then you sit inside it. Yeah, I wonder why you're not happy. Yeah. This raises an interesting question, which is of architecture and design as somehow a reflection of your soul or your very being, your essence. 
I think that gets expressed by people a lot. This I've always imagined this. This is the home that I always the kitchen. I, I've just this this kitchen will be the kitchen in yeah, which yeah. I will find my true purpose and I will be recognised for yeah. the person I truly am. And then six years later, they change it. <laughs> so it's rubbish, isn't it? I mean, it's it's our taste change. My taste is not your cha- your taste. Um, your taste is not your taste of ten years ago or ten years hence. And so uh, you know, we, we all can admire other people's work. We don't necessarily have to want it or like it, but we can still admire the quality of the design, the quality of the craftsmanship. And uh, the more I see, the more confused I am as to what actually I really, I really want. But you know, I say that facetiously because um, um, what I, if if I, if I were to design a house tomorrow, it, you know, or, or, or ask my son to design a house. Um, it, it would result from a very iterative process of of working together, asking questions about uh, space and sto- storage, and a, it's often a response to place, to you know, to the outlook and to the where the sun tracks, and you know, there's a tree to provide shade or something. So I kind of think, in a way, that architecture and design are very pragmatic disciplines, and that they are they connect to those very primal desires we have. Uh, Oh, I've always wanted this. I love that. But you have to ask yourself, what are the things that matter in your life, really? And and what are the experiences and the beliefs you hold dear? Not just, you know, not just remember what you saw last week in a magazine that you rather liked. Mm. And, and so I'm, I'm I, look, I mean, I live in a world surrounded by people who are kind of expressing their, their, their tastes all the time and their dreams, of course, yeah. But I'm just watching that, as are we all. They're not dreams that we necessarily need. We all have our own dreams. We all have our own private um, desires. And, and it's, you know, it's architecture's job to figure out what are the important things, the longer-term things, and to organise space and light and uh, the volumes that we live in and to provide the best possible experiences for us to flourish. It's, that, it's, it's a very simple set of objectives, really. Does your house reflect your dreams and desires? Yeah, come on. Um, it's comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> What's it like your house? Uh, I I live in a very modest place, and it's uh, it's uh, it's very comfortable and uh, very. Um, it's good for the moment, and who knows? You know, five years time, it'll be something else. I, I in a way, I I, I used to deflect. Uh, all conversations about where I live because I thought, first of all, uh, well, it kind of preserves the myth or whatever. <laughs> um, and secondly, uh, it, you know, it preserves, pre- preserves some privacy. And, and I actually now have come to think of it as entirely irrelevant because in a way my job is to talk about other people's journeys and, uh, you know, and so my own, you know, my own taste, for example. I, it's actually important that I, I don't colour uh, what we, what I do, what we say on television, what we present—it's quite an important thing to remain in neutral gear and to sort of offer have a the, tabula rasa upon yeah, which people and to, can, you know, and to provide the the questioning voice and to almost represent the viewer's position, the viewer's mind. I mean, you know, nobody asked David Attenborough what his pets are. <laughs> they probably did, actually. <laughs> um, you said something earlier. 
which I'd like to come back to because it's not the first time that you've referred to something like this, um, which was that when you're in Italy on on your gap year, you're able to kind of create a personality for yourself. Mm. And you've you, you've you've said at another point that um, that you know you're quite shy and always have been, and you discovered performing. And TV was, and I'm quoting you, TV was kind of a way to hide your true self. Oh, you've done too much research. I have. Sorry, it's a fault. Um, but, um, but I'm interested in this, in this idea of self-creation. Do you mm. have a sense of a true you in the same way that there might be a true kitchen? Or, or is that just sort of oh, a fool's errand? Yeah, no, that's a very <clears throat> good question. Well, of course, we all of us do present an aspect, a shell of ourselves to the world, and we go through life admiring others for their confidence, not realizing that, like us, they're exactly the same. <laughs> they're just kind of, you know, we're we're all a little brittle on the outside and and rather fragile on the inside. So um, I think I think you know, to your own, you know, that old adage about to your own self be true. Of course, is valuable, um, even if your own self is um, conflicted, ambiguous, confused, um, contradictory. Um, and I'm talking about myself, but I'm, I think I'm probably talking about every human being on the planet. Mm. So I think the only thing that happens with the passing of time is that you become more resolved about how you, know, how you shouldn't give yourself too hard a time. And the uh, as, as to the opportunity to develop that that carapace, that uh, that uh, that slightly more resilient shell. Uh, television's quite a good place to do that. It's it's a little bit. Uh, I'm, I'm you know, one or two teachers, and I've got two cousins who are teachers, and I think, I think, presenting television's a little bit like teaching. You know, you're in control of the class. You can bang on. People have to listen to you. It's not a conversation. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just telling you how it is. All right. <laughs> so it, I'm often berated for for lecturing and hectoring and not having a conversation. Not, but but I, having said that, you know, as I say, I think it's all... Um, it, it's, it suits me. It suits. I think it probably suits my personality type and it does allow me, to, in, a, in a way, to retain um, a, a quieter self that is off-camera. Yeah, it's a more private self, yes. Yes, which is, which is me, you know, yeah. So your next birthday... You're turning 60. Yeah. And next year you'll reach the milestone of 200 episodes of Grand Designs. Oh, what, you thinking we should celebrate both at the same time or something? I was thinking it would be a lovely party. Listen, okay, two things here. Mate of mine said, don't celebrate your 60th birthday. Wait a few years. It'll be much more fun. Why? Much, much more relaxed. That's what he did. Okay. Yeah. Two, Grand Designs, we'll be going to the pub. <laughs> Well, Kevin McLeod, it's been a great pleasure wasting an hour with you. And for me. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. You can watch the video of Kevin McLeod's event at Sydney Opera House at youtube.com slash ideas at the house or find the link in our show notes. On the podcast next week is scientist Lisa Ann Gershwin, who's responsible for discovering over 200 species of jellyfish. It's a Long Story is produced out of the Sydney Opera House Talks and Ideas program. We're produced and edited by Susie Anderson, recorded by Joshua Craig and John Gardner, mastered by Riley Edwards. Our theme music is composed by Rainbow Chan. Our research is done by Ellen O'Brien and Rachel Power. Thanks to Jacqueline Booten, Fleur Mitchell and Nerida Ross. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby, and I'll catch you next time. Mm-hmm.